Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. We are going to be talking today about the fifth episode of season three of Srugim. And um, I'm really honored to be joined by really the the original Rabbi Parnik, um, and uh, to be able to, to partner on this learning. It's such a pleasure to be able to have you in class, but it's also so lovely to to be able to teach with you. And and it looks like we matched today. We're both wearing yellow, which we didn't discuss. So we came very well prepared. Um, so I'm going to let Rai Parnik start things off and then uh, and then we'll do class like we normally do. Um, probably a little bit less banter because, you know, Kavod Harav and all those things. Um, but uh but, no need for too much kavod, so yeah. <laughs> uh, but very excited to be able to do this with you, and and I'm sure we will miss Josh, but it'll it's lovely to be able to teach with you. Well, I'm I'm especially excited because as soon as this is over, I'm officially on vacation for six days. So oh, wow. yeah, so this color was in honor of our weather today and the blazing sun that we've been having, and mm-hmm. you know things like that. <laughs> but um, so. I guess one of the questions I, when Rabbi Schatz and I, you know, we, we watched the episode 3,000 miles apart, um, but there's one very, very important theme that uh, kind of runs through this. And it's interesting because it's a very well-known concept, not only in Judaism, but um, there's actually a, uh, a section of the Talmud that is named after it. And yet, it's something that we are supposed to try to avoid, according to the rabbis. So I wonder if anybody can tell me specifically what we're talking about. Well, you're talking about you're talking about vows, and I can remember very well Rabbi Shire once at home in Montreal giving a sermon, being very careful to give a vow because it has serious implications, and better not to give it than to give it. Yeah. And that, that's exactly the traditional perspective, that even if you're well-intentioned, you're totally sincere, you're better off not doing this, because it's, it's led to so many problems. So before we get to the vows, or the vow, one particular vow in the episode, if we go back to biblical times, what are some vows that you all remember, or um, for the Nolans people, that y'all remember? <laughs> A Nazarite vow. Marriage so, vow. The, right. So let's start with the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow, which was actually part of my daughter's bat mitzvah portion um, from Bamidbar, the book of Numbers, chapter six. Can anybody tell us essentially what the Nazarite vow was? No wine, long hair. Uh, Can't touch a dead body. Pretty much everything Samson wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> well, because Samson was a Nazarite. <laughs> right. So you can't cut your hair, you can't eat or drink grape products, you can't be in the presence of the dead, right? And and why was that? What was the, so why would somebody become a Nazarite or what was the motivation? Dedicated to God. Wasn't it for also for a time limit as well? It you could have to, to buy your way out. So there could be a time limit, but in the case of uh, Samson or many other people, there was, 
you weren't necessarily born into the Nazarite status. So why would somebody become a Nazarite? Some sort of repentance. No, the mother uh, promised that in order to be uh, get have a child. Exactly right. So usually it was when the person wanted something. And it, it had to be something that was like really, really. It wasn't like a kid saying, "Oh, you know, I want an I want an iPhone or I want a PlayStation or I want you know not that kind of stuff." But no, but it, we have a serious we have a serious positive one with the story of, of Hannah. Exactly. So let's let's get to that in just a moment. But uh, in terms of the Nazarite, because I just want to finish up with that, we often have with cases of uh, women who were barren who are unable to get pregnant, or somebody who is very, very ill, right? And so, you know, if I'm blessed with a child, which was the case of Shimshon's mother, you know, I will dedicate him to the Lord. He will be a Nazareth. Now, as far as I know, and maybe Rabbi Schatz is more familiar with this than I am, the story of Samson was unique in, the, in that the hair was connected to physical strength. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know another, I don't know that we actually hear about another Nazarite in Torah. Um, I was just teaching on this in my Parsha class for Betham when it came up in Bamimar. Um, and like, it's not just any longer, a few weeks ago. Um, but, uh, but it's, we couldn't, the other teacher, Rabbi Shapiro, and I couldn't think of another space where we talk about someone who took on a Nazarite vow um in Torah or even in Tanakh um and then we also couldn't think of a time that it was so connected to like a physical attribute more so the things that you would give up but not necessarily a physical attribute that then was connected to strength as you said so so who is a Nazarite today where are the Nazarites today and they're not Jesus. in Nazareth by the way it's a Jesus yeah no so he was just so that you know he was the a Nazarene Nazir is different than Nazareth, which in Hebrew is not Seret, yeah. it's Sadi, as opposed to a Zion. So in English, they sound very similar. In Hebrew, they are totally different roots. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's, it's, we say Jesus of Nazareth, but in Hebrew, they say Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, so. The only person in the Christian Bible who was claimed to be a Nazarite was Paul. He took the vow upon himself. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they were basically saying that he was rejecting the Torah and rejecting the Judy and rejecting Judaism. So he took himself and like a bunch of other guys and pretty much like 10 other guys and did a Nazarite vow. Oh, hmm. So where, where are the Nazarites today, though? Okay. Well, in shopping so, malls, selling did Shopping mall. <laughs> So if you run into somebody who says he's a Nazarite or she's a Nazarite, it's a bit of a problem. So this was like many Jewish concepts, something that got essentially abused. Now, I'm sure that Josh, if he was here, would open up a page on Safaria in front of us and point out the specific rabbinic reference, which I am not able to do. But essentially, the uh, the rabbis decided that this was a very bad thing. You know, whatever was going on, people were saying, oh, I want this and I want that. And it was it was not being taken seriously. It was. And so they basically got rid of it. All right, which is a very interesting thing that when rabbis want to change the halakha, they can. Remember but, that. 
Yes. <laughs> Some rabbis can change it. An interesting I mean, concept, yeah. All right. So without but getting also, too... Rabbi Pernick, at the time of that change, that was in relatively close post-Talmudic times, as opposed to even by uh, Rambam or uh, Ramban times, by Correct. which point things were relatively set. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's just go to a few more vows. So we, somebody mentioned Hannah. Tell us a little bit about Hannah. Well, Hannah is the mother of Samuel, one of our early judges. And she prayed for a son and she agreed that if she were for a child and she agreed or assuming of a son. And if the son were to come, that he would dedicate, that she would bring him to the, uh, to the temple and dedicate it, uh, bring him to God and he would be, uh, life would be dedicated to God. But to the best of my recollection, it wasn't a, a Nazarite type of vow in that. That was a right. simply a straight, I want a child and return this child. I said that it's really before the temple. It's, it's still in judge times, but, uh, that he, to bring it to the, to the, uh, to God and would be a servant of God and a leader for all his life. And God granted her the request, but it was a straight, there was no uh, mm-hmm. Nazarite element in that at all, at all, unless one of you tell me to the contrary. No, you're right. You're right. So how about a couple of other vows? Well, I, there are two that just come to mind for me. One is in the Torah, and one is in the uh, Book of Judges. Denise, did you have, you have your hand up. Did you have an answer or a question? So I have a question, um, because I'm thinking of a bunch of oaths, like, I can't remember what what they were for, but I know there's times where like Avram and I think Yaakov swear different oaths and they have to like make declarations and put their hands and all kinds of stuff. So my question is, what's the difference between that and a nadir? Or is there a difference? Very good. Well, I think that you also in asking your question, I think you answered one of Rabbi Parnick's Torah, at least the Torah piece that he was referring to. So I'll let him, uh, I'll let, I'll let well, him take that one. So actually there, it was not the one I was thinking of, but there is the one where you're talking about putting your hands in all kinds of interesting places where if you remember that Abraham, you know, it's right after the Akedah, right after the binding of Isaac. And all of a sudden it's kind of like Abraham's eyes are open that he's got a 37 year old single son living at home and he's kind of like, we got to get you married. You know, <laughs> I mean, so he sends his servant, Eliezer, to go back to his homeland. And he says, put your hand on my thigh, which, of course, is not on his thigh. And make a vow that you will only find somebody, right, from my people. Mm-hmm. And then Eliezer says, okay, so I'm going to do this. And if there's a woman and if she does this and if she says this and if this and if that, then that's the one. Mm-hmm. And of course, how long does it take him to find that woman? As they'd say in Israel, chick chock. Yeah, right? not, so, not so long. <laughs> no. And there's Rebecca right at the well. Um, sometimes we have a vow, which is not, to me, it's one of the weakest ones that we have in the Torah. And it's Jacob. And he's, you know, he's alone. He's at the rock. He's having the dream. And it's like, 
if God will protect me and if God gives me food and if God gives me clothing and if God protects me and if God, you know, does my laundry three times a week and if God does all these things, then the Lord shall be my God. It's like the middle school test vow, right? It's a... (laughs) It's that I have a test on Thursday. I know I didn't study enough, but God, if I do well on this test, I promise I will speak nicely to my siblings and make dinner for a week. And it's that, it's that kind of vow. Right. It, it was not one of the more inspiring vows of, <laughs> of the Tanakh. Right. Um, and of course, there's one vow, and we, I promise we will get to Srugim after this, but one very, very disturbing vow that has terrible consequences. And there's actually a very famous novel based upon this vow. The title is based on this vow. And I think a lot of you are probably familiar with it. Yeah, it's the one in which uh, the first person of the opera, the first person who comes through the door will be killed. I vow. Correct. Jephthah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, Jephthah, who is the son uh, of a prostitute. And of course, all the other kids make fun of him in middle school, you know, as Rabbi Schatz is saying. And, um, back to middle school. You know, it's all middle school. It explains a lot. And, but he's, you know, like a great fighter. And the people need somebody to defend them as he gets older and they come to him. And he's, you know, this is one of those moral quandaries. They treated me so badly. And now they say they need me. And so he says, okay, I will do it. And if God brings me victory, then I will offer a sacrifice to the Lord of the first thing I see when I come back to town. And he wins the battle. And of course, his loving and adoring daughter comes running out to greet him. And not having studied with either Rabbi Schatz or the younger Rabbi Pernick, um, he does not realize that this was not a valid vow. And so he tells his daughter, guess what I got to do? And he gives her a 30-day grace period so she can spend time with her friends and all that. But in the end, according to the story, he offers her up as a sacrifice, which every rabbinic source that I've ever heard of says is completely wrong. Even though he made the vow, it was an invalid vow to begin. Yeah. So that's a little bit about biblical vows. But the vow that we're dealing with, I'm sorry, Rebecca and Leon. I mean, Leonard, sorry. <laughs> Hi, I, I saw Leon, but okay, yes, Leonard. <laughs> Hi, there. well, it's okay. You can uh, abbreviate me. Um, so I did a little research while you were talking there about uh, the Nazarites. So there's yes. two of them in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, so we talked about Samson, but uh, uh, but Samuel was also a Nazarite. Those are the uh-huh. only two. And then right. you asked about where are the Nazarites today, and the answer appears to be the Rastafarians. Apparently, they take a vow, which is uh, the same vow that uh, Samson took. And uh, as a result, they don't cut their hair. And I don't know what else they don't do, but that's why they have dreadlocks. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Interesting. I didn't either. Michael. You have to unmute. Michael, you're on mute. Rabbi Shat, both rabbis, didn't we? And I had asked you and you had reconfirmed for me that Samson was uh, not Samson. That Samuel was not a Nazarite. It was his wife. It's his mother who took the vow, not Samuel. I, I mean, I first I trust Leonard. I don't remember that Samuel takes on the same restrictions that Samson does. It's also very confusing that they have such similar names. My brother's name is Samson. We call him Sammy, but everyone always thinks his name is Samuel. 
Um, but oh, and Rye Pernick's grandson's middle name is Samuel. Anyway, this is all coming coming full circle. Um, so I I didn't remember that he had taken that Samuel had taken on the same restrictions in terms of Nazarite law. Um, but it's possible that due to the type of vow that was taken, that he is considered to be a Nazarite. I actually, I, I'm I don't know. look while you're talking. Okay, I think yeah, it's, for, it's chapter here. one of First Samuel. I'm trying, just like reading through it very quickly, but I didn't see anything about the Nazarite. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, no, no, no. It does say Hannah says, "I have drunk no wine or other strong drink," but I've been pouring out. Yeah. Well, she doesn't, but she that's doesn't, her defense. Right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I don't see the term Nazarite right there, but uh, not seeing grabbing my English Tanakh right away. But it, but anyway, it's it's possible that that I mean to go to actually to the next thing that we're talking about, which is our episode. It's yes. possible that these different kinds of vows that were taken, these different nadarim that were taken, were were seen as similar based on outcome or based on application even if the the way in which you practiced similar to the way that we know Samson practiced didn't didn't stay consistent throughout each character who took on these different vows as we saw with Jacob right not a Nazarite but took on a very um interesting middle school vow uh to be able to find that connection to God and one of the things that Rabbi Pernick and I were talking about um was that when we and when I say this, you're all going to say, oh, yeah, of course. The The most famous line of liturgy that you all know is kol nidre, right? right? Yeah. All of our vows, all of our nidarim. Um, and the reason that we say kol nidre at that point in our high holiday season, but also at that moment of Yom Kippur is because we we are starting this very long day of saying anything that I've done or anything that I've said I was going to do, that all needs to now be absolved so that I can take on these other aspects of myself to find that purity, to find that clean slate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that I can reach Na'ila at the end. So that that's just a piece that if you weren't putting the Hebrew together, you might not think of, oh, that's the same, even though we don't think of ourselves as taking on vows and then becoming a Nazarite or, or finding that connection um, with God in any kind of characteristic way. But it is the same idea of sometimes people say, neder, right? Without, without any promise, without me making a vow, I'm going to show up to our class tonight at 6.15 PM, right? So if you don't, you haven't actually taken on a vow you just said I might be there. So some people have the practice of saying "blee neder." Um, Leonard and then Norm. Hold on. Okay. okay. So uh, my my source, Wikipedia, <laughs> has uh, pointed me to First uh, Samuel chapter one, verse eleven. Okay. So I'll just read this from Sepharia. And she made this vow. A word of host, if you will look upon the suffering of your maidservant and will remember me and not forget your maidservant. And if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Right. No razor shall ever touch his head. Mm, you're right. ah, okay. So there's one aspect yeah, there of Nazarite law that she's at least saying he will take on for himself. Um, 
I guess what I'm not remembering is, does he then continue with that, right? Like, do we know anything more about his practice through Nazarite law? Because one of the things that Rabbi Pernick brought up and that I was mentioning, we discussed in my Parsha class, is that one of the most interesting aspects of Nazarite law is that even if the mother says, you know, such and such is going to happen uh, if you allow me to have a child, the person themselves, similar to Samson, has to then take on the practices of Nazarite law. It's not like, oh, I'm going to walk around in the world and I'm a Nazarite. You have to then not eat those things, not not shave your or not cut your hair, not shave your head, any of those um, uh, attributes. Right. You don't you don't then do that also to yourself. So it's something that even if it was put on you, you, the person, have to carry it on. So it would just be interesting to read even more closely to see if Samuel actually also then continues that, uh, even though his mother puts it on him uh, before he's born. Can I add one more thing? Yeah, of course. A couple years ago, uh, we went to a wedding of a relative in Muncie, New York. So these are all uh, black hats. Yeah. And um, uh, a cousin that had lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years and had moved back to New York, whatever, uh, had offered to give us, we were staying in Manhattan and had offered to give us a ride back to Manhattan. We had another relative there who... uh, uh, who offered to give us a ride to someplace in New Jersey where we could hop on a train easily back to Manhattan. And uh, she said, well, if you have a ride, that's fine. Otherwise, I'd be happy to give you a ride now. So I went to him and I said, well, you know, are, you know, if you can give us a ride, that's great. Otherwise, we, we'll, we'll just leave and, and get this other ride that we have. And he said he wouldn't commit to giving a ride. I don't know. The, I don't know how he could possibly do business, but you know what? All he said was is that there's an excellent chance I'll be able to take you, or there's a ninety percent chance I'll be able to take you. But yeah, he would not say yes. I will give you a ride. Yeah. Yeah, wanted, I mean, I, yes, I'll give you a ride, bleed netter. He wouldn't say it. And so in the end, we just uh, trusted that what, he just was incapable of saying those words. And we let the other person go and we got a ride. <laughs> well, there you go. I think that there is this concept of, I don't, I don't have any friends who do this. Um, even those who are, or are more from than I. Um, but I, I think there is a culture around saying bleed netter that, you know, this person clearly took that, that custom and that culture very, very seriously, even in not even saying Blee Netter, but just saying, I don't know that I'll be able to do it. But there is, um, as Raleigh Pernick started off by saying, that it's a big, it's a big deal to a lot of people to take on a vow. Um, and this is not, in English, it's the same word for a vow that you would take, you know, in a marriage, but in Judaism, it's not. But even if even if you're thinking about that connection just colloquially, that's a, it's a big deal. And so if you say I promise to do something, you you then are expected to do that. So I think I was going to say societally, but I don't actually think it's that big. I think it it is a it has become a custom in some in some areas of Judaism to just say blineder so that you don't feel like you have all of those nedarim when you get to kol nidre. <laughs> Um, that you're that you're absolving yourself of. Um, let's Norm just go and then, to Norm, and then let's maybe just move more on to the uh, the show. In in regard to Kol Nidre, we don't really withdraw our um, vows from the previous year 
but it actually is from that Yom Kippur until the coming Yom Kippur, we are in advance renouncing any vows that we should happen to make to God over the forthcoming year, not the previous year. Right. So it's, yes, it's kind of like, which way are you looking at the glass, half full or half empty, right? I think that 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 is allowing you to know that there is this clean slate that you're starting with and that you're going to be absolved of those of those vows that you're going to potentially make. And then by the time you get to Kol Nidre, when you're saying those words, you are then recognizing the absolution of the of of those vows. So yes, I think we're saying the same thing. We're just saying them in opposite ways. And it's just a matter of how you're looking at it in terms of in preparation or in recognition that in this past year, you might have done things that that were absolved by the year before that now you're going to start again, you know, clean. I don't love that word, but for the for the coming year. Yeah. Um, okay. Ry Parnick, did you what what okay. where do you want to so, go from here? Well, so what, what I want to go to is, you know, Tehillah. We have we have a, a triangle, the love triangle. We have Tehillah, <laughs> we have Azaria, and we have Nati. And Nati, of course, has become smitten with Tehillah. And she says, though, I can't see you because I've made a vow that I'm not going out with anybody until Azaria has moved on. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think I know what she means by that. What What do you think she means by he? She means by that. Do people have thoughts? I can share, but I'm happy to also hear what what others think. Yeah, Renee. That unless he's, she knows for a fact that he's dating someone else, that she doesn't feel comfortable doing that herself. Maybe out I of like you, yeah, I like your answer out very much because I was afraid somebody was going to say that he's forgotten her. And I was going to say that you never, for, you know, you don't forget people that, you know, you've been in love with, right? That probably most of us remember our first boyfriend or girlfriend, especially, I don't know if there's anybody here who married their first boyfriend or girlfriend, but mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you remember, even if you don't like them anymore, you know, you still remember. So, mm-hmm. so to me, there's a real contrast here because she is doing something that to me is so ethical and so moral in contrast to Nazi. What's he trying to do? Whatever suits him best. Well, yes, whatever is good for him. So he'll yeah, make a shit up with someone else just so he can get her. He'll make a shit up, even if he doesn't necessarily believe in that shit up. Right. Correct. He want, but he wants to get her off of the vow, out of the vow on a technicality. <laughs> you know, if you knew you were going to meet me before you started going out with them, you know, if you knew this, would you, you know, and he's talking to Amir, you know, what do you have to do to get out of a vow? And Amir makes it sound very simple. Yeah. Which I don't know that it really, it's quite that act, you know, quite that simple. Um, you know, if, if you regret it, you just say, I regret it. And, you know, and it's like, you're done. It's like, mm, I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of like the rabbinic view of divorce. You know, if your wife burns your, your meal, then you could just say, huh, I divorced you. You know, I'm not happy. Um, so he's trying to get out on a, on a technicality and she's taking this vow very seriously. You know, she doesn't want to see Azaria. She doesn't want him in her life anymore, but she takes this very seriously. Yeah. Which, which to me is just such a, I'm, I'm very happy that she's in the business of, of making a, you know, what would be the plural of parochet? 
parochiot or parochiot? Yeah, I think so. No, I think you're right the first time. Okay. But I mean, you know, it's kind of a holy business. It's like, you know, she's not just an artist who, who does things, you know. I mean, she's really taking it seriously. Well, and I think she's also one of the one of the aspects of her taking on this vow that you and I actually spoke about a little bit is that she she's not just taking on this vow for herself. She's also taking on this vow for him, right? Even if she was the one who broke his heart, which we know from the first episode of this season, she's basically saying, I, this was not right for me, but I need him to recognize that to find someone else who is right for him before I can be happy. And before I can find the person who is right for me, even if she might be ready to move on, which it seems like she she conceptually is, but maybe isn't actually emotionally ready, um, but that she really is standing by this vow as such a beautiful way of saying, I, I made a promise to this person to love him. And if I can't love him, I want him to find love before I can move on to loving someone else. And as a really... I don't know. Yeah, ethical. I used that word earlier. Like, it's, it's just, that's a very beautiful way of thinking about relationship. That even once you're done with it, it doesn't mean that it doesn't linger and affect the next thing to come. Right. Which is what nadarim do all the time, right? They're affecting. If you take mm-hmm. on a neder, you are you are affected by that which you promised to do, but you also are affecting either the person or the thing that you promised to happen, which is why Amir says you have to go before abating because you have to actually say, this is something that I did. This is something that I promised. And I need witnesses to know that I regret saying that, that I need to get out of it because either I can't fulfill it or for whatever reason. And so it does need to be some kind of legal transaction, just like, a conversion or just like a get or a marriage where you need witnesses to be able to say this person is now stepping out of, of the position they've put themselves into. Um, Renee and then Norm. What, was there a reason that Amir brought the two young boys as opposed to Shiva Bukhers? Is that because of like their neshama is more pure? I think he was just trying, I mean, maybe Ryan Pernick has a different idea, but I think he was just trying to do something with these kids that he wasn't really sure how to entertain and teach. And so he was like, okay, here's a Jewish lesson. Let me show you what it means to become a bait dean. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't think there was any like real meaning behind that. I think that right. was the reason. And for the kids, it was a hundred shekels. Yeah. Exactly. Not bad. You know. Yeah. They didn't even learn anything about Jude. I mean, I guess they learned what a bait I, I just found those kids so humorous. It's like, you know, their lessons over off with the kippah, you know, it's just like, yeah. you know, it was just, I thought the keeper thing was really interesting that that they were I mean it just shows a part of Israel right that that is just so unique to Israel that we don't have in America that here here are kids that can sing trope maybe not super accurately but sing trope do their you know read every word of Hebrew accurately and yet there's there's no connection to that being a religious act they just that's that's Judaism. They know how to read and they know how to sing. And that's, that's that. Um, but yeah, the, the kippah piece and the type of kippah they were wearing, which is one of those like nylon throwaway kippahs. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Um, I, just be, before we yeah. call on Norm, I just, I, let me, I want to connect that with something that made a huge impression on me. And that was after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. 
mm. which um, is uh, 20, 30, 26 years ago or so. And his kids didn't know how to say Kaddish. You know, and if you go back and you looked at it, I mean, they, I mean, yes, it's Aramaic, but still it's, they just, yeah. And I don't think it was the emotion. They just, they weren't familiar with the religion. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't know Kaddish. That's very interesting. Many secular Israelis are incredibly unfamiliar with the religion. Many of them have very cynical attitudes about how, you know, with a little bit of money, somebody will testify for you that you're really a Jewish, a Jew, so you can get married mm-hmm. and other such things. Corruption in the rabbit is unfortunately um, rampant there. Mm-hmm. And these clearly were two secular twins that he is tutoring for their bar mitzvah. And obviously they're Israelis. They know the Hebrew perfectly fine. Reading it is not a problem. Their trope was weak. Their knowledge of other things, there was no reason to think there was any. Um, they put on the yarmulke when they have to, and the rest of the time they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, something that I'm sure many Israelis would find very familiar I remember when um, my cousin's son, who's only a few years younger than me, um, said at one point, um, we were driving someplace, his father was driving, this is in 1975 already, um, that he seemed to think that Ashkenazi was Lush and Kodesh and Sephardi, which he used all the time, was not. And his father got really upset that all Hebrew is is Lush and Kodesh, and how could his son not know this? Well, that's because his son was brought up as a secular Jew in Tel Aviv, and, you know, Ramat Aviv, and Ramos, and uh, uh, that's very normal there yeah. um, to have that kind of level of ignorance. And yeah. these kids, to me, just epitomized that, and it was a shame that what they were learning was, hey, you know, you can get paid to be on this court, which was all but a sham, but it's what um, Nadi wanted because oh. he didn't want very many people to know yeah. how incredibly manipulative he was being. And imagine how upset Azaria would have found, would have been if he would have found that in fact, Nadi had gone to great efforts to try and develop a relationship with this woman after. Yeah. He had clearly expressed that the opposite is the reason he was willing to um, become friendly with Nadia at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that these characters are all so complicated, which makes it a good show, obviously. But I think one of the things that Nati con- continues to come back to is his own ego, right? And and how how self kind of involved he is. Um, even around this, oh, this is a person who I had this one moment with in the first episode where someone had said, maybe you're just waiting for the right girl. And then she popped in and, you know, well, this must be a Disney movie. So it's going to be her and it's all going to be okay in the end. And now he's stuck on that. And so he's doing everything he can. But in the way are all these hurdles that he's that he's trying to get over because he's realizing that He's so consumed with his own self and his own, um, you know, desired outcome that he is burning bridges all around him. So um, I think we're seeing an original Nati come back, unfortunately, in a few different ways. 
Uh, Rebecca or Leonard? Hi, my, my time it dates back uh, about 10 minutes ago, so it may not be so relevant anymore. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but just talking about, uh, you know, how uh, fluent Israel or not so Israelis are with their heritage. Yeah. Uh, you know, at our synagogue, we have the Pressman Academy, which is a which is a day school, and it prides itself in Hebrew immersion. And they do actually a very good job of teaching Hebrew to the to the kids there. Yeah. Most of the students that come are people, you know, who value the religion and so on. But there's other people that show up there because of the Hebrew, mm-hmm. in particular Israelis who come you know, for a couple of years to work at the consulate or for Banku mm-hmm. or whatever, and they want their kids to not forget their Hebrew and they'll send them to the school as well. Yeah. I remember several years ago going to a, but, you know, there happened to be a bat mitzvah in the main sanctuary. And it was one of the, a girl who was a daughter of, uh, you know, a couple who was there for just a short time, you know, for a couple of years, whatever. Anyway, the daughter did a fantastic job at her bat mitzvah. She did everything right. And at a certain point, they called the father up to say a blessing. And he's Israeli. Of course, he could read this no problem whatsoever. Until he got to one little word. <laughs> yud, Arani. No, Yud. Oh. Yud, Yud. Yeah, and he, which yeah. he pronounced yeah, <laughs> and so the rabbi helped him out and said, "No, no, that's Adonai." He goes, "Okay," he says Adonai, and then it comes up again later, and it's yeah, yeah again. <laughs> wow, that's that's funny. Um, so one of the things I've never actually been able to find, which I don't want to spend time on here, but if Rabbi Schatz knows or anybody else to let me know later, where exactly that double yud came from. I, I haven't done extensive research, but I've never found it. But but that's for another time. Oh, yeah. What I what I wanted to talk about now is to just and we were talking about it just a couple of minutes ago in terms of Nazi's behavior. But when Rabbi Schatz and I were talking, I also saw it in Hodaya and in Azaria and in so many others about lies, little white lies, if you will. But there are, you know, so little that. Okay, please. I, I think the whole series has been a total lack of honesty, trust. Uh, everybody in the entire series from one to the next, yeah. um, it, it's just a continuing thing. And I, I wonder if it's the writers or <laughs> if this is the way they think things are. Yeah. It was it's, so it's been astonishing. And, you know, in, in Stissel, which obviously a totally different show, but you see the same thing even more magnified. But, you know, I just had written down a few of them in no particular order. But, you know, you have Nati with telling the guy, you know, I want that locker. So, you know, tell the other doctor that there was a dead mouse that was found in there. Right. Um, you have Nati when Ruud says, oh, you must have told Azaria to call me. And he didn't. But Azaria called um, and Nati's like, uh, yeah, sure, I did. Yeah, fine. And then Azaria knows that Ruud is an accountant and he needs an accountant to help with his fine. And, you know, he pretends, no, so what do you do for a living? You know, it's just all these things. So my question is, is this, are these acceptable white lies or do you, do you see this as problematic? When we were talking about this, um, I'll bring this up and then people can share. But um, when we were talking about this on the phone yesterday, one of the things that I mentioned is that there's a very famous sugi on the Talmud that's that's fondly known as Ketzad Miraktim. Uh, and it's this sugiya that talks all about 
how if a bride is not, and there's many different um, examples, but this is the most famous example. If a bride is not beautiful to you, should you say what a beautiful bride she is? Um, because th- is that white lie something that you should say to the bride on her on her wedding day? And so one of the things that this brings up for me is when is it appropriate to use a white lie? And when is it just a lie? What is it? Sure, it might be small and insignificant, but when is it something that should, for example, should Nati have just apologized and said, yes, Rayut, actually, I told him everything about you, that you might be feeling awkward about how much he knew about you. I'm, I'm sorry. As opposed to just continuing the lie, the mouse one might not be as big of a deal because it's not ruining anybody's life. But is are there different kinds of little lies that are being told both throughout the show, as Eileen said, both throughout the show, but also just in general um, that are that should not be used. And when we go back to that sugi of Kate and Maraktim, right? How do we think about? the way in which our, our tradition is also setting us up to know when they are useful versus when they're hurtful. Let's go to Denise. Okay. The invisible Denise, but nonetheless, <laughs> I'm sure it'll be a very valuable comment. Oh, well, I didn't know. I didn't. Um, so I think in, what Rabbi Schatz's question makes me think of is, I think if it's a white lie that's intended to make someone else feel better, Maybe that's okay. Mm. But if it's a white lie that's intended to get you something that you're not actually entitled to, like maybe get someone to do a project for you and tell them they're supposed to, but you really, you're, they're not supposed to, but they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. Can we think of a white lie? You tell them it, that they're, you know, really nice and smart and everything. Right. Just because you want them to feel comfortable. That's not not a bad thing. Yeah. Can we think of a white lie that's told near the beginning of the Torah, a very well-known white lie? Renee? The biting of the apple. Nothing will happen to you if you bite the apple. Okay, well, two things, because you hit hit one of my my pet peeves, or if you will. (laughs) Okay. The fruit from the tree of knowledge. Sorry, it wasn't I, I gotta tell you, I, I have, the fruit. I, you the know, fruit. It, it could benefit you because, you know, even though I don't have it in my pocket, I do have a $1 million offer out there for anybody who can find an apple in the story of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> there is no apple, right? Okay, right. so yes, the fruit. But that's, that's really, I don't, I, I don't know that that's a white lie. I think that's more of a lie. You know, that's manipulative. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where we get the concept of, Satan or, or, you know, somebody's trying to do evil, trying to cause you harm. But I'm thinking specifically oh, yes. of two, two very revered figures. Well, um, yeah. Michael. Rabbi, it's, it's the famous one when, uh, Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt and some, suddenly Sarah is his sister. Well, so that's okay. So in that case, I'm, I'm going to put that one in a slightly different category also because <laughs> that's really pikuach nefesh. <laughs> That's saving your life. Is right? it? To save a life, uh, you're allowed. Yeah. Right? Is, I mean, is it Isaac and uh, Abraham and Isaac, when he uh, is taking him uh, to the uh, make the sacrifice, that he doesn't tell Isaac the truth? There you go. 
But I don't think he lies to him. He just doesn't tell him the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Right? I've got one in mind, and you all know it. It's a great story. You all know it. Renee knows it, but she's on mute. Uh, Jacob or... Uh, and... Um... Not the one I'm thinking of. Rebecca and Leonard, I know your hand's been up. I don't know if it's for this or for something else. Okay, so we'll, we'll get back to you. So... I'll give you a clue. It has to do with Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, right. So he tells uh, the king that uh, Sarah's his sister. Yeah, no, not that one. Because again, that's that's pikuach nefesh. That's saving the life. Remember when Sarah learns the three angels come and Sarah learns that she's going to have a baby. She's going to get pregnant and she's 89 years old. And slightly paraphrasing, she says, you know, what with that old man? You know, he's going to give me a father. He's going to give me a child. And so then God or the angel, you know, turns to Abraham and says, you know, well, why did, you know, why was Sarah so, you know, you know, aghast or not believing that this could happen? And she said, how am I going to have a child old as I am, meaning old as I, Sarah, am. But that's not what Sarah said. And hmm. this is really maybe the first instance of Shalom Bayit which goes back to one of the concepts that Rabbi Schatz was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, you know, if, if you're, and to me, that's the beautiful bride. Mm-hmm. You know, this is Shalom Bayit. I mean, you know, it's like, to the, you know, all of the men here know, you know, honey, does this dress make, like, make me look fat? It's like, you know, there's either no answer or there's, just, <laughs> you know, I mean, now that could be pikuach nefesh also saving your life. But, <laughs> but you know, a, every bride is beautiful period. And it doesn't matter how homely or whatever she is. Every bride is beautiful. That's Shalom Bayad. And there's there's nothing to benefit from pointing out any obvious, you know, or, or less than obvious flaws. But God, you know, says God actually changes the words that Sarah said in order that Abraham is not made to feel belittled hmm. in the pre-Viagra days. So, yeah. Okay, let's go back to Rebecca and or Leonard, who were patient. You had a, a comment from before? Uh, I thought I'd answer your question about where the yud yud came from. Oh, please. Sure. Uh, Norm has already uh, said something in the chat over there, but I looked this up in my etymological dictionary of the Hebrew language. And according to that, uh, it says that this, of course, stands for the Tetragrammaton, but it says it probably derives from hove to be. And then it doesn't explain exactly why why it uh, says that, but, uh, you know... uh, Because hove does not have any yuds in it. Well, no, but... I mean, yeah, yeah, all right, I don't want to get it... uh, to, okay. you know, so that, that, I want to stick yeah, to another, the topic. Another but, possible word is yeah. yah, and yah is definitely contraction. Oh, absolutely, yeah. The tetragrammaton. So just tell you, I, I say I give you a answer, not the answer. Okay, <laughs> I appreciate it. I also wanted to give you one of the other very humorous incidents that occurred in the episode with lack of honesty. And that was Hodaya, who was talking about, you know, when she thought she might be pregnant, but she didn't want to exp- say it to Yifat. So she talked about how she was jogging and doing all this jogging all around. And Yifat was so, you know, impressed. And it's like, oh, we should go power walking. And, you know, you see Hodaya trying to keep up with Yifat. And she's like, ah. you know, I mean, she's just like 
she's falling apart. So that was, uh, you know, that, that. Yeah. And again, I wonder, I wonder if that kind of lie, right, is to save her from having to tell her friend too soon if she is pregnant or, you know, who who knows if that, um, if she was just embarrassed because she's not married and if she might be pregnant, then she's having sex before she's married. And right. So there's, there could be some embarrassment, but there also is the case Similar again, actually, to the Kate Samaraktim case, right? Where, where like you wouldn't want to say something that would make someone embarrassed or make them feel as though now they have this information that is going to change. In this case, potentially, obviously, you would you would hope that it wouldn't be, but potentially, given the pregnancy, that the information could change and could that be painful and all those things. Um, so it, it is an interesting an interesting case where she's definitely not telling the truth. But, but is it because she's worried that the truth actually might, might cause her more pain or harm in the future? It won't set her free. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted Um, to ask a question, which I did not understand. And there may, it may just be the drama, but when Nati releases the woman who was asking the patient who was asking about his love life and the lovely woman and all of that, and she, then she dies on her way home from the hospital and obviously he gets very, very upset and he's looking back at the records and everything like that. It was like, you know, garnished with garnished, you know, GMG. Um, was there anything, was there something more there that I didn't see or was that just sadness what? and grief? I thought it might just be sadness and grief, but there could also, given that it's naughty, there could be an element that somebody's going to come and look at his records and he see that he said it's Gornish McDornish, mm. when in fact she obviously was not well. Mm. Because somebody who's well and gets discharged from the hospital gets all the way home. And yeah. she didn't. So, okay. you know, he may be hoping to get the record so he can correct them or change them before somebody does some mm. sort of a more serious review of them. Um, it could be completely selfish. And as for Hodaya, who we've seen be dishonest with coworkers and employers and others over the course of the, of the, of the show, um, I thought this particular lie was really harmless. It was intended to spare her some possible embarrassment, but not in a way that, w- that should have harmed anybody else. As it turns out, it has the unfortunate to her aspect that now um, she's expected to go on a power walk, but in and of itself, that little lie was not was calculated to not harm anybody, and as such, to my way of thinking, was pretty benign, especially given how most of these people behaved. I would yeah. agree. Yeah, Karen. Karen. <laughs> Karen. Karen. As far as Nazis, I think he's there and not there. He likes this woman, the older lady. They have a good relationship. He's looking at the tests. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. so to write that is uh, insane to do as a doctor. Who you know what I mean? And now I think he feels guilt, but he's he's kind of like that. I mean, one leaves, the other one comes. The clown he loves, and then she. I think it's just part of his character, and it caught up with him. Mm-hmm. About the, Esther the has a good point. Do you see uh, Esther's Esther? comment? Oh. Patient mentioned asked, what about the pressure in my chest? Yeah. 
And he says it's nothing. Yeah. Don't worry. I, I also think, and, and we've all had experiences like this. Um, uh, my, my week last week was a lot of this, that sometimes when there's a lot going on, that something right in front of you that should be so simple for you to see, or in his case, diagnose, your brain is just so overrun with other things that you don't realize what's actually in front of you, um, even if it's simple. And so I think that, at least for me, the way that I read him, and I, I tend to kind of want Nachi to do better and be better. So maybe this is me reading into him a little bit. But I think that he, in that moment of frustration and grief over her death, recognized that throughout the episode, he had spent way too much time on something that might never be with this woman, trying to figure out puzzles and how do I get Rayud over on this side so that I can go that way and Azari is taken care of and how do I reconfigure my life so that I can have what I want but yet the thing that's right in front of him that should be so simple to solve and is his job, he's not even able to do. And that, I, I thought that that was a little bit of the frustration and the anger, you know, why not take care of this person who was right there and yet he's living in kind of la-la land to figure out the rest of his future that might not actually be his future. Very good. I thought maybe he felt really guilty. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Agreed. And I think his relationship with um, Avril or, or whatever her name is, is a figment of his imagination. <laughs> I mean, he thinks he's in love with her. He doesn't know one way or the other, really. Yeah, they it's interesting. Know. It's interesting to also look at his character with her because it reminds me a lot of um, some of our patriarchs and matriarchs, actually, and especially, um, especially Isaac who had this really close relationship with his mother. And then when he takes Rebecca to be his wife, it says in the Torah that, that he takes her to kind of um, complete him like his mother, you know, used to do for him that, that, that Rebecca really like now fulfills that, that void that Sarah left behind. Um, And in a similar way, I think that because she's creating this parochet for his mother and she's, he's getting to, kind of therapeutically talk about this woman who he hasn't really processed through her death or that grief that it's, it is, I think you're right, creating this love that might not even be there, but that looks really great on paper. Um, and, and probably feels very good to him to have a companion in that way, but it's not, at least what she's expressing is not that romantic love that's going to make it continue in the way that he thinks. Okay. Rebecca Leonard. Yeah, I think um, uh, the old woman, the patient, was the only person who Nati had confided in about, yeah. uh, um, you know, mm-hmm. that he was pursuing Tehila and 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 such. So, yeah. I mean, she was his confidant, and so you know, when he when he went to Tehila and um, she she said, "You need to back off. This is too much pressure. You know, you're this is too much." And so then he backed off. He even came back and kind of said it in a positive way to the the old lady that, okay, I'm going to wait, you know, I'm mm-hmm. going to wait. So that was, you know, a, a meaningful interaction he had had with a woman. And as you said, his mother had recently passed away. So there's maybe that 
that mm-hmm. notion also. But I, I would also say that on the flip side of backing off and giving somebody uh, space like Tahila wanted Nadi to do, on the flip side with Rayut and uh, um, Azaria, that uh, it was when Rayut uh, said, no, I'm not interested, that Azaria, he starts walking out and he turns around, you want to go to a movie, you know, then he he's interested because she's not interested. Whereas when she was pursuing him, that doesn't work. So uh, it's kind of the flip, uh, the flip side. Yes. I feel like it's the game that all couples play at some point <laughs> in terms of who, you know, in like modern day, it's but shouldn't he text me? I can't text him because if I text him, then I look like I'm begging to be, you know, part of this. So he should really text me. But then if he doesn't text me, what if he's out there looking for somebody else? I feel like there's a lot of that both in, you know, the way that we watch shows and TV and all of those kinds of things, but also in real life, it's that game of, of courtship that no one exactly understands until you realize you're playing a game and you can stop. Um, but I think you're right that he is, he's just trying to, or she, in this case, I think is trying to figure out how do I play this game to get him to be interested in me? And then as soon as she backs off, he realizes, oh, wait a second, maybe, maybe that is actually what I want. Um, so let me just mention something, two things very briefly. Okay. I could even do three and leave you with the homework assignment. So, um, (laughs) One, I want to just point out, I really love what Denise wrote, just talking about, you know, where this woman dies from a heart issue at the same time that her doctor is going through these Mm. issues of the heart. Okay. I mean, I think that that may have been the intent there. I mean, I I like that very, very much, Denise. Um, And in terms of what you're talking about with Azaria and Ruth, so my six our six-year-old granddaughter is at a JCC camp for the summer and she has a crush on this boy. All right. So she's getting a lot of advice about how much of a crush she should let him know that she actually has. And so far the, the prevailing theory, right. Is that she should not like say, you know, she should not show that she has a hundred percent or as she put it a 90% crush on him. She's six. Right. But you know, scale it back. Who's like giving 50. her this advice? Oh, all the adults. All the you can. All you can the adults. Kind of, you can okay. kind of guess. Okay, you can kind of guess. But I you can, know, yeah. play, a, play a little hard to get. Mm-hmm, okay, mm-hmm. you know some of the games. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I thought that, and this is my, either to talk about here or depending on the hour, if you want something to think about, the inscription that Azaria writes in the book before he leaves, and that she saw which I'm not sure if I got it completely correct, but it's something like to beautiful root. So first of all, he calls her beautiful, which he didn't have to do, right? But to beautiful root who has her feet on the ground from the man with his head and his feet in the clouds. And I think just in terms of how he as a poet lives his life, you know, his head is in the clouds, his feet are in the clouds. He's a, he's a space cadet, right? But she... Said that her feet were on the ground, but her head was in the clouds. Her head was in so the clouds. Okay, that, like connection between them too, which yeah. was nice. Yeah. So, and I mean, I think there's there's a lot more there, you know, that we can expound upon. But you know, that everybody can kind of think about 
you know, are you the, are you the nuts and bolts kind of person or are you the just creative dreamer? I think the thing we should all think about is how to give Mayura six-year-old advice on what to tell her crush. That's what I'm thinking about currently. <laughs> I, um, I, I, I would leave that to Rabbi Schatz. I'm sure right. that she could give excellent advice. I'll, to call, I'll call her immediately. The last <laughs> time I gave her anything, it was a, a package of nail polish. So now we'll go, we'll just skip right to so, the teenage So you're, you're already involved. Yeah. If you gave her now nail polish, you're, you're part of the conspiracy yeah. already. We're be- yeah. Best friend. Um, but I think it is such a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing for people to be able to think about because when, when we hear him say that to her, is he acknowledging that she is grounded, that she knows what she wants, that she has her feet on the ground and that he doesn't yet? Like, is that a, is that a message to her in terms of what their relationship could be? Or is there something beautiful about, you know, living with your whole essence, kind of not knowing and not having to figure things out and, oh, this looks really good on paper. So let me make sure that this works in my future, as opposed to just letting things be as they are, which is kind of more his style. Um, so to see how this relationship blooms or dies, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but it is a beautiful, a beautiful way of poetically trying to figure out their different characters in the show. Um, well, this is what I love. Yeah, Sue Ray. So you don't think that he was using her saying all those beautiful things because he was going to use her. Interesting. I, I didn't, but, but I wouldn't put it past. I was going to say a man. I wouldn't put it past a person to do that. Um, but I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, he wasn't interested in her before, but then as soon as he heard that she was an accountant and he needed help, then as a poet, he was saying the right things. That's Yeah, he's good with words. You're right. Um, Interesting. I did not read it that way, but, you know, if the other Rabbi Pernick were here, I bet anything that that is how he also read it. So, um, So we can, you know... See, to me, she she's hurt because she thought, you know, she said, maybe I've got an interest in this guy and maybe he has an interest yeah. in me. And then she kind of realizes that he just wanted to go out with her because she was an accountant and she needed he needed help, you know, right. with this fine. And that's why she says to him, you know, next time you have some tax issue or whatever, just tell me, you know, just be honest. Yeah. And that's when he comes out. You know, and he kind of leaves and then he comes back and that's what he writes. So maybe it's, you know, with a measure of guilt on his part that he realizes that either that he has some kind of feelings or that he's trying to explain or apologize for what he And that she's a strong person and that he maybe that is more attractive to him than than um than she would have put out there in initially. And so once she kind of sets boundaries, then all of a sudden he figures, okay, this is some, I understand where we are at and that's attractive to me. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Who knows? Um, 
Well, this was very fun. And, uh, and any time that Rabbi Josh Pernick cannot be here, you are welcome to teach. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tba.org.